Well, today we're going to return to the book of Zechariah. So go ahead and turn there, please, to the book of Zechariah. Robin, do we have a, um, like a meal thing going for the Diaz's? Other people are working on it. Will and Carrie are working on it. Okay. So if you would like to, you saw the announcement about the new baby that was born. If you'd like to help by making a meal, see if, uh, I don't think Carrie is here with us. She herself just had a baby. Uh, gee whiz. Uh, and so see Will, and he might be able to get you on that rotation. Just a very simple, practical way to bless people. I remember when we had our babies, and somebody made, brought me shrimp cocktail. Um, <laughs> Robin didn't get any. I got it all. Um, I was like, wow, what a blessing. I love this church, you know, so. Anyhow, we're going to be in the book of Zechariah. We definitely need to pray. Father, we ask that you would be in our midst. You'd minister to us. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray today, Lord, as we consider uh, this passage that's been described as sort of the most uh, prophetic material lumped into one section in the whole Bible. Lord, I pray, Lord, as we, uh, we consider these things, that you would give us a greater love for your word, sort of a trust in your word, a confidence in your word. And Lord, uh, you would enlarge our hearts in the process to take in more of who you are and what you want to do and accomplish in our lives, Lord. We're, we're grateful. It's a gift for us to be able to gather in this way, for us to sit here in peace, to have Bibles in front of us and up on the screen. Lord, for the ministry of your spirit in our lives, Lord, you have gifted us in so many ways. We don't want to take advantage of it. We don't want to miss it. And so we pray you would bless your word this morning as it goes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in the book of Zechariah, so turn there. I think you, uh, we have some available near you. If you don't have your own, if you don't have one, keep that one, all right? Um, not just put on your shelf or throw in your car for every Sunday morning, but for you to read it, to study it, to hear what God wants to say to you. But we've been working through the books of the minor prophets. Remember, there's 12 of those books. To, we are on the 11th of those 12. We're in the book of Zechariah. And the book of Zechariah, along with the book of Hosea, is are the two longest of the minor prophetic books that have been preserved for us in our scriptures. And we've been taking our time working our way through this book of Zechariah. It's been taking a little while now. And what we have discovered is there are two main sections or three total sections really to this book. The, the second section sort of is, it builds on the first section, so some people include it there as well. The first section was that section dealing with all of those visions that Zechariah received. If you were with us, you know there were eight of them. You perhaps remember what a lot of those visions were. The general summary statement of those eight visions was God's attempt to encourage a discouraged people. They, were, they had been rebuilding this temple. It wasn't going so well. Even the part they did didn't compare to the glory of the one that previously existed. And the people had become discouraged. There were pressures from enemy nations around them. We'll never be what we once were, etc. And the people got discouraged. And God sent Zechariah to minister to those discouraged people. Section 2, which in many ways we began to consider last week, that centered, well, we did, that centered around that question. You remember the question was, should we keep fasting or not? And so over the 70, 80 years or so that they had been taken out of the land into captivity and then kind of came back into the land, but it was nothing like what it used to be, during that 70 or 80 years, they were mourning what they once were. 
and what they once had. And they did that through the fast. And as we learned, they uh, instituted four fasts to commemorate all of these events with the destruction of the temple and the seizing of Jerusalem and the killing of the high priest and all those things that we spent our time considering. Well, today we enter into the third section of the book. There's 14 chapters in the book. Today we pick up in chapter 9 in the final section of this book. And this is a section of the book that is... Uh, it's very different from any of the sections of the book that we've already considered. Um, here, rather than having visions or answering questions, here we have, in many ways, sermons that are presented. And this is how a lot of the other minor prophets that we've considered, it was a, just a record simply of their sermon that they've given. And in that sermon or in that message that Zechariah is going to give, there's a whole lot of future prophecy, future to him, prophecy or, or prophes, prophecies that he is going to give that we have an opportunity to consider. Again, same purpose, designed to encourage the people. But what he's going to do is sort of lay out God's entire future plan for the children of Israel. And there are a lot of scholars, liberal scholars, liberal in the what I mean by that is they tend to, I don't know if the Bible really means that or says that, or it probably means this. There are a lot of liberal scholars that doubt this material. Certainly, this material couldn't have been written when Zechariah is said to have written it. Now, we are in a period of Zechariah's life where he's much, much older than the beginning of the book. In the beginning of the book, maybe around the year would be a good round number, 515 B.C. We're probably closer to 475 B.C. So he's a much older fella. He's been with the people now for about 50 years. He's been ministering to them when he's going to deliver the, the last six or so chapters of this book. And there are many liberal scholars that will look at this and say, there's no way this guy wrote this material in 475 B.C., it's too accurate. It's to a T. Somebody after those events occurred must have written them and said that Zechariah wrote them. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that that's not the case, uh, in my opinion, and I'll, I'll make my case for that as we move. As I just said a moment ago, many years have passed. Probably about 50 years of ministry Zechariah has uh, been doing that is recorded in this book. And that's another reason why scholars think there were actually, so to speak, two Zacharias. Well, I'm very different than I was 50 years ago. I was one. All right? uh, so I wrote very differently back then. Zechariah has grown. He's developed. He's uh, got a different burden that is on his heart. His style of ministry is very different as the Lord has revealed it to him. And so I don't think just because the writing style is different that you would automatically conclude, well, a different guy. It's just a guy that's 50 years older and doing things a little bit differently. The temple has been rebuilt. It's been long completed, probably about 35 years, 40 years. It's already been uh, rebuilt and completed. And Zechariah now is going to turn his attention from the present. That's really what the beginning of the book was all about. We're discouraged about building this temple. Come on, we can do this. God's with us. And should we keep fasting? That's the present. Come on, you know, you can do this and so on. And he's going to take his attention from the present to the future. As I said earlier, God's unfolding plan for the children of Israel. The people's hearts, unfortunately, were drifting. Maybe you've been there. You know, you, you kind of get 
you, you get back into the things of the Lord and you're like, all right, I'm good. I'm where I need to be. And then you, you find yourself, you drift right back again to where you, maybe you once were and you didn't want to be. That's kind of what uh, Zechariah is dealing with. And if you look now at chapter 9, verse 1, you will see that he begins there. It depends on the version that you're reading. But he begins there and he uses the word, the oracle. Maybe your version says the burden. And he speaks about this burden that he has here. If you go to chapter 12, verse 1, you'll see there it talks about the oracle of the word of the Lord. Zechariah is going to give two messages. That's what the rest of this book is, two sermons. Two messages, two oracles, two burdens that are upon his heart about the Lord and his plan for the children of Israel. And in these two burdens, we'll see, I'm kind of giving an intro now for the rest of the book. In these two burdens, he's going to speak about the coming of God's Messiah. Now the challenge, however for Zechariah, and I think for all the Old Testament prophets, I think it was the challenge for Jesus' disciples, is which coming are we talking about? Are we talking about his first coming, which we just celebrated a couple of months ago uh, with Christmas, where he comes as a, a little babe and grows to be a man and, and does what he does that we read about in our Gospels? Or are we talking about his second coming, his glorious return, as we read about in places like the book of Revelation? Well, as Zechariah is receiving these messages, I think we have an advantage to Zechariah because we're able to look back, we're able to read these things, put them in their context. We understand that there were two comings. But you remember the disciples, Lord, now are you going to establish your kingdom? Or, or now are you going to set up your throne? They didn't understand that there was a first coming where he would come and suffer and serve others. The prophets refer to him as the suffering servant. And a second coming where he would rule and reign. The prophets refer to him there as a conquering king. And so Zechariah, and it's a little bit of a confusing aspect of our studies, Zechariah will be seeing or, or having this revelation that God is giving to him, and he'll start talking about the first coming of Christ and then move right into the second coming of Christ. And we know there's a 2,000-year interval in between. Are you with me? And so, good. Chapters 9 to 11 are going to begin and primarily focus on his first coming. As you move into chapters uh, 12 to 14, they will focus primarily on the second coming. So you're with me? Let's jump into the first oracle. I don't think we're going to finish it all today. It's three chapters, but we will do our best. Chapter 9, it begins this way. It says, now the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, and Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise or very proud, some versions say. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her, of her possessions and will strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire. Now the chapter, which we'll get to where it talks about the first coming of Christ, it begins with God having to deal with all of the enemies of Israel. Remember that was one of their big concerns 
was we have no protection from these enemies and we're just sitting ducks. They can come, they can get us whenever they want to get us. And so the chapter is going to begin by God's pronouncement of judgment against the enemies of Israel. First four verses, a number of different locations, you can see them there, are listed. It talks about, in verse 1, the land of Hadrach, and the land of Damascus, and Hamath, and Tyre, and Sidon. Some of those might be names you're familiar with. Certainly the name Damascus is a city that still exists today and is well known. The others, Hadrach, uh, Tyre, Sidon, Hamath, maybe not so. You can go, you can look it up for yourselves, but all of those are locations that were north of the boundary of Israel. Today they would be in countries like the country of Lebanon and the country of Syria, which no doubt you have heard of. And so those nations or those cities are the first ones that are called out, Hamath, Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, and, and Hadrach. As you go to verse 5, notice he lists some more nations or cities. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. Now the Jebusites, that's the area that would later go by the name of Jerusalem. And the people that lived in Jebus, they made friends, so to speak, with David in particular, and lived, not as Jews, but lived in that area there and served the kingdom. That's the point that it's making there at the end when it talks about Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Those people will be assimilated into the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. But here, like the first four verses, which talked about the cities that were north of Israel, these three or four verses, they speak about the cities of Ashkelon, Gaza. You've heard of Gaza, the Gaza Strip, uh, Ekron, Ashdod, and Philistia. A little while back when uh, the people of the, in the Gaza Strip were, were almost sending up like homemade rockets, some of those rockets, missiles landed in the city of Ashdod. So it's still there today, and it's a Jewish um, settlement. Uh, in that area of the world today. So the city is still around here today. But in that day, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, they were all, they were the four of the five major cities that made up the Philistine Empire or the Philistine people. You've heard of them? The Philistines? The Philistines were a perennial enemy of the Jews. It's, if you know where Gaza Strip is, you think of Israel on Israel's uh, western coast is the Mediterranean Sea. You, if you follow that coastline down south, eventually you would hit Egypt. Between Egypt and Israel is that area that is known as Gaza or the Gaza Strip. And roughly in that southwestern corner of the nation of Israel, that's where the Philistine empires all uh, resided or, or listed. And from there they would attack Israel and they had done so for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so there was always that little settlement of folks that were down in that region. And here now, as God is dealing with the enemy nations of Israel in preparation for his first coming, which we'll get to, we'll talk about it, as he's dealing with it, he first has dealt with those cities to the north, and now he's going to deal with those cities to the south or to the southwest of the land of Israel, those that made up the area of Philistine. 
So there is some force, we'll talk about it, that is moving from above Israel through that area, down into Israel, down into the southwest corner of Israel. Then as we see here in verse 8, it says, And then I will encamp, this is God speaking through Zechariah, I will encamp at my house as a guard. Let's just take a guess. Where's God's house? That's a great guess. Maybe it's wrong, maybe it's right, but it's a very good guess, and it's right. Uh, he says, I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall gain, again, I should say, march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. And so he talks about my house, that is the city of Jerusalem. This is where many of the liberal scholars have a problem with this portion of the book, because they say it is too accurate. And it, it accurately, or too accurately in their thinking, it uh, aligns perfectly with the invasion of Alexander the Great. You've heard of him from your studies. You weren't paying attention, I know, in high school. But you heard of him, yeah, Alexander the Great. Country he's associated with? The country of Greece, fantastic. Alexander the Great came into the region of Israel in 320, or excuse me, 332 BC. It was a two-year uh, invasion of that region, the area north of it, Lebanon, Syria today, the area of Israel, down in Philistia, and then he also made his way to Jerusalem. If you've forgotten, Alexander was the one who controlled the world-ruling empire of the Greek people. And the, the Greeks ruled the world for about 200 years in the, three, the late 300s into the 200s or so. For about 200 years, they ruled the world, or the known world at that time. If you're following along, we've been talking about a succession of world empires that uh, in our study of the Old Testament, both here on Sunday mornings and particularly on Wednesday evenings. And that succession of ruling empires, you may remember, that there was the period where there were the Assyrians and how they bothered the people of Israel, taking the northern kingdom into captivity. Then there, the Assyrians were replaced by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar and others, and how they came in. They're the ones who took the southern kingdom into captivity. The Babylonians were defeated by, as we learned, the Medes and the Persians. And then the Medes and the Persians were defeated by the Greeks. If you want to look ahead, the Greeks are going to be defeated by the Romans. You have this succession of world-ruling empires, and there were other empires in other parts of the world, the Chinese dynasties, and so on, but these were the empires that were directly impacting the people of Israel. And this opening set of verses in chapter 9 is dealing with the emergence of the, this Greek-ruling empire, and particularly Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great came into power in 336 B.C., and in, in just 13 years, he conquered the known world. First place that he began to conquer is he went east and he took care of the Medes and the Persians. And he defeated them in less than two years. Then he went south. He ventured uh, south to conquer the cities of Damascus and Hamath and Tyre and Sidon. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Zechariah said in the order that Zechariah said it in. Said it, said it, it. That's not English, um, but we're still working. Then he hugged the Mediterranean coast. Alexander the Great, pick up your history book. You can go uh, read it. And there he attacked the Philistine cities, cities like Ekron, Ashdod, 
Ashkelon, Gaza, sound familiar? That's exactly what Zachariah said. So if I didn't believe the Bible, then yeah, I would come to the conclusion, ah, oh, come on, that was right after the fact, that's impossible. He goes on, or we know he went on, after Alexander the Great and his armies attacked those Philistine cities, he did like a fish hook, and he went and he headed back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is on the east coast of Israel, kind of in the middle from top to bottom, but not exactly. And so he fish hooks and he goes back there. And then, historians have no idea why, he does not attack Jerusalem. He's attacking everything else, he's defeating everything else, but when he gets to Jerusalem, he doesn't attack. It's inexplicable to historians. There are reasons suggested and that are told for why he spared Jerusalem. And in each one of those reasons, it has something to do with the high priest of Israel. So the stories are a little different. It's not in our Bible, so we can't confirm it. But the stories are a little different, but each time it involves the high priest of Israel. So that tells me, if you have multiple stories involving the high priest, that it probably had something to do with the high priest. The stories are this. There's one account where the, the priest and the high priest realize that Alexander is on his way to them, and so they decide to go outside of the city so that they can meet him outside of the city in kind of the wilderness area where there's no people, and they can try and talk to him and have some kind of conversation with them. And when they get out there, this is one of the accounts of what may have happened, is when they get out there, they begin to show him in the scriptures, particularly in the book of Daniel, where it speaks of this world-ruling empire replacing, if you will, the Medes and being the Greeks, and they show him that. And he's so amazed by that that he says, wow, that's awesome. Can I offer a sacrifice for my sins? And he does. I don't think he became a, a Jew or a Christian, but he, he has those priests offer a sacrifice, and then he leaves, and he goes back to his capital. That's one of the stories. The other story is related to a dream that it is said that Alexander had long before he attacked the Medes and the Persians and the people of Lebanon and Syria and the Philistines. Long before that, he had a dream, and in his dream, he saw someone that he didn't know it, but was dressed as the Jewish high priest, the Jewish high priest, speaking for God, said, go out and attack in these places and you'll have victory. And so now here he comes to Jerusalem and here comes the guy from his dream. That looks just like the priest that he saw in that particular dream with the head thing and all that. And that kind of blew his mind. And so he said, hey, can I offer a sacrifice and get out of here? And he did. I don't know exactly what happened, but here's what I do know. And historians tell us this as well, is he never attacked Jerusalem. He comes right to the edge of Jerusalem and then he leaves and he leaves it alone. The reason why, look at chapter 9, verse 8. It says, the Lord says, and then I will encamp at my house as a guard. Now, Alexander didn't see God with, you know, flaming swords or something like that, but God encamped at the house of Jerusalem there, and he would not allow them to come in. It says, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor will again march over them, for now I will see it with my own eyes. God promised to protect Jerusalem at that time, and God did protect Jerusalem at that time. And again, because this prophecy is so accurate, there are so many that have a hard time accepting it. But the reality is this, if you believe, as I do, that these words are inspired by a God that is outside of time, what would it matter if he predicted something 15 minutes into the future or 150 years into the future as he did? wouldn't be too hard for him. And that is why we have such an accurate portrayal of what would happen amongst the children of Israel. Now, it goes on in verse 9. 
It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Ephraim was the largest of the tribes of the northern kingdom. Remember, there were 10 tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Jewish people. And so since it was the largest, most influential and powerful, many times the northern kingdom was just called Ephraim. Jerusalem was the capital city of the southern kingdom. So those two kingdoms are being referenced in verse 10. He says, And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, if verse 9 sounds familiar to you, it's because it's recorded in the New Testament. I believe it's what Jim uh, read earlier at the start of our time together. It's the Old Testament prophecy that predicts the triumphal entry of God's Messiah into the capital city, the city there of Jerusalem. And there aren't a lot of messianic prophecies better known than this particular prophecy. This is recorded for us in Matthew 21. It's recorded for us in the New Testament in John chapter 12. And it's the event that we commonly know as Palm Sunday. You've heard of it, no doubt. Here's how Matthew recorded the event. He says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says, hey, don't steal that then you shall say, the Lord needs them. And then they will say, they will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, his name, Zechariah, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did. They brought the donkey and the colt. They put on them their cloaks, and he sat, Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and tree branches. Verse 9, and the crowds that went before him, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. That's a messianic title. The son of David would be the, the one that would one day sit on the throne that David once sat on. Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I know Jim read it. Here's the other one from John. It says, Now Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, saying, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now here, this is, I think, important. His disciples did not understand these things at first. That's the point I was making. I don't know if Zechariah even understood them. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had been done before him. Zechariah is writing these just about 500 years before Jesus would actually fulfill these events. He says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, Behold, your king is coming to you. And then we see something that we might not expect, that he is coming riding on a donkey or on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so though Zechariah is the one who gave it to us, as those other prophets that we read in the Old Testament, the, 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 what the Lord is revealing here is an important descriptor of how his Messiah King will come in his first coming. That the day of his unveiling will be marked by one of humility and by his desire for peace. 
Now just contrast that for a second. Let's say that Alexander the Great did go into Jerusalem. Do you think he'd come riding in on a donkey? No, he'd get the biggest, tallest, strongest horse that he could find, and he'd get as many other ones as he could find and have his army come riding in in that particular way. And yet here is the king of kings entering in in that first coming on a humble donkey. Now, there is a little bit more to the fact, well, there's a horse, there's a donkey. Oh, my gosh, like what a difference here. There's a little bit more to the significance of him coming in on a donkey. The... the typical customary mount for a conquering general or conquering king would have been a horse. The customary mount for an established king or leader or general that wasn't going in for battle or to beat the people into submission, it was a donkey. And so there's a statement that is being made here about the purpose of Jesus's first coming. Jesus' first coming isn't to kind of wield the sword and start killing people. Though that's pretty much what the second coming will look like. His first coming was an announcement of peace. It wasn't for war, but it was for peace. And the procession of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, it shows that Jesus was going to be or looking to be a different kind of peace. Isaiah refers to him as the prince of of peace, the king of peace, the ruler of peace, who came, he was sent to reconcile sinners to God. Because outside of Christ, we do not have peace with God. We're separated from God. We're alienated from God. Our sin keeps us from right relationship with God. Jesus in his first coming, or if we don't even know Jesus' name and we're just looking at the Old Testament prophet, the Messiah in his first coming, his purpose was to bring peace with God. Now, there will be a time when Jesus will come as the warrior king. Revelation 19, I think, is one of the clearest. Let me read a brief portion of it. Revelation 19 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's the saints of God that have been raptured to heaven and will return with him at his second coming. That's me and you, if you're a Christian. Anyway... I just, I always like, hey, I'm in the Bible. All right. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. That's his second coming. Now, that day is yet future. I will say this. I think it's a day that's coming very, very quickly, however. Fortunately for everyone in this room, we are still living in the age of grace. We're living in that age where our humble king has come in peace in order to make peace. And people talk all the time about the need for peace in our world, whether it's international peace It's an internal peace. 
uh, an interpersonal peace between us and others. People just want peace. We want the fighting to stop and to end, whether it's an internal struggle or it's an external struggle. I'll say this, the most pressing need, and this is why I think God deals with it first and foremost, the most pressing need or place where peace is needed is peace with God. I think every person gets right with God, you're going to deal with all these other problems that are outside uh, of us. And first and foremost, Jesus, who came to bring peace, comes to make peace between God and rebellious, sinful humanity. He came in his first coming to pay the penalty for our sins because those sins separated from us from God and prevented us from having peace with God. He comes the first time in order that, despite our sin, we could be justified before him. Here's how the Apostle Paul said this. He said, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he came for in our first setting. That's the chief purpose of his first coming. Now, as we go to verse 10, Zechariah does what I don't think he would do if he had the hindsight of the New Testament. But Zechariah goes right into information about the second coming without saying, now that was the first one, now I'm going to transition here. But he goes right into it because he doesn't know necessarily there's a 2,000-year window in between. And so he shifts now to the second coming when Jesus will come a second time to the earth. I already read the Revelation 19 passage. Very different from the babe in a manger, isn't it? Very different from a poor family that no room in the inn, you can go sleep out outside in the barn if you would like to. Very different from the poor family that grew up in Nazareth and, didn't, and when they even came to offer an offering for Jesus and for Mary's cleansing after his birth, they had to utilize the poor option, which was two turtle doves instead of the animal option of the lamb. Very different here, this coming. You remember Jesus... The, know this, Jesus did promise he would come again. Came the first time, he will come a second time. Just prior to his crucifixion, Jesus said these words. He's talking to his disciples. This is John 14. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In the Zechariah passage, chapter 9, verse 10, that's what he's referring to. He's referring to the second coming of Christ. Verse 9, first coming. Verse 10, second coming. Verse 9, the humble suffering servant, riding in on a humble donkey to bring peace, not war. The second coming, a mighty conquering king. Zechariah goes on in verse 10. And he says that his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The point being there, the entire earth will be the, under the authority of the Messiah in that day. As Zechariah has done on numerous occasions in the beginning of the book, he takes the people's thinking from their present situation all the way to the future glorious millennial kingdom where Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years and there will be peace on the earth. Zechariah continues in verse 11. He says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The idea is a prison. 
They'd be thrown down into a pit, a former well that uh, probably dried up, and they'd be down there in a jail of sorts. He says, I will set your prisoners free. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will wield you like a warrior's sword. Now these verses here, they speak of the Jews' future restoration. Now what's unusual, what's unexpected, if you will, about these verses is that the children of Israel, they had been restored to the land. You remember when the Medes and the Persians took over, Darius said to them, you want to go back? You can go back. And about 10% or less came back. And then as the years went by, more and more came back, and they were back in the land, and they rebuilt their temple and began to rebuild their walls and, and all of those things that Nehemiah speaks about and Ezra speaks about. And yet here, it's talking about a future restoration from the time of Zechariah. We know that because again and again in those verses, it talks about will. I will set your prisoners free, and I will bring them back into the land. I will stir you up, O Zion, against the Greeks, and so on. And so we know that there's this future restoration still to Zechariah that he is speaking of. Zechariah doesn't know all this. We can look back in hindsight in our study of the scriptures and even in our study of history. What we are given is the reason for the restoration, It says in verse 11, the Lord speaking through Zechariah, because of the blood of my covenant with you. God's going to keep the covenant that he had made with his people, the Jewish people. Now you remember that an Old Testament covenant was sealed with blood. Typically what that meant is they take a couple of animals or an animal, they they would sacrifice that animal, and then that blood would seal the covenant. It was almost like saying, Uh, If either one of us breaks this covenant, may what happened to that bird happen to you and I? The general idea. That's the blood of the covenant. And so here in the verse, the Lord says, I will restore the people back to the land because of the covenant that I made with the people. Now, there's a whole bunch of Old Testament covenants. I think there's eight of them. Uh, I don't remember exactly. And the covenant that's being spoken of here, it could be any of a number of those covenants. It could be the Abrahamic covenant where God promised to Abraham the land. I want you to come from the place that I will, uh, from here, and I want you to go to a place, and I'm going to give you that land. You're going to inherit it. But I don't have any kids. You know, you let me handle that, the Lord says. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And certainly that fits. I'm going to bring you back to the land, the Abrahamic covenant. Or the Mosaic covenant, the one that was given to Moses. You do these things, I will bless you. You do these things, I will curse you. You keep the law, and my blessing will be poured out on you as my people. could be that. It could be the Davidic covenant. You remember the Davidic covenant? God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would sit upon the throne forever and ever and rule and reign in righteousness. That certainly fits with this conversation about the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom for a thousand years. So we're not exactly sure which covenant is being referenced, but we do see very clearly God intends to keep this covenant and that the Jewish people will be set free from their captivity and that they will return to the land once more. Now, I think ultimately this prophecy is pointing to a day yet future. It's pointing to, even though Israel's in the land today, it's pointing to a day yet future when Israel will be fully restored to its land 
and Israel will be a place that is marked by peace. Israel's, Israel's not marked by peace. They still have their tensions and their problems, and they have to be on their guard, um, certainly, and they do an incredible job doing so. And they're not fully re restored to the land and all of the land that uh, extended beyond their present borders. But I do think, so there's a future day, but I do think that we have seen a partial fulfillment of these verses. Not just with Israel returning to the land in 1948, but also to the period, immediate, I know we're doing a lot of history, bear with me, I'm having a good time. Um, <laughs> to the period of history immediately following Alexander the Great, and by immediately the 100 years or so following him. And the reason why is if you look at the end of verse 13, it talks about the struggle with Greece. There's only one time in the history of Israeli-Greek relations where there was a struggle. Remember, Alexander the Great came to attack them, and then he stopped and he pulled away. The only one time that the Israelis and the Greeks went at one another in a battle was during the period that Jews refer to as the period of the Maccabees. If you come from a Catholic background and you've ever kind of perused uh, through the Apocrypha, there's four books that are 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees, and it really tells the history of this time period. Zechariah prophesied around 475. Greece doesn't become a world empire. They existed as a city-state, a small little thing over here. They don't become a world empire until Alexander in 330. It's in the 160s that the Maccabees come on the scene. Let me tell you how we get there. Alexander the Great becomes emperor of this little city-state, Greece, when he's 20 years old. 20 years old. Can you imagine being the emperor? And he began to attack first the east. Remember this dream that he had that told him to go out? First to the east, he takes over the Medes and the Persians. Then he goes down into the south. He takes over essentially Lebanon and Syria. Then he goes down toward Egypt, and he takes the area of the Philistines. Then he returns back to sort of his capital, and from there he begins to establish all these places. That's where he establishes his new capital, which is the capital Alexandria, which is in northern Egypt. Not in Gre what we think of Greece at all, in northern Egypt. And from there he rules his empire. He does all of that in 13 years. And then at the age of 33, he dies. Rather suddenly, unexpectedly, obviously 33 years old, he dies. His empire then is divided up amongst three empires, essentially, all Greeks, if you will, but three different people. You take that region, you take this one, you take that one. Maybe you've heard of the Seleucids. The Seleucids were, everyone's like, nope, never heard of them. Look it up when you go home. The Seleucids were the one that decided that were ruling over the area that included Israel or Judah. And one of their leaders, 100 years or so after Alexander, a little more than that, was a fellow by the name of Antiochus, Epiphanes. Maybe you heard that name. Antiochus Epiphanes, unlike Alexander the Great, hated the Jews. We're not even really told why. I think it was Satan, to be frank, or Greg, as I share this with you. But he hated the Jews, and he wanted to put an end to, to the Jews and to Jewish worship. And he rem they weren't allowed to celebrate the Sabbath, and they weren't allowed to have their sacrifices, and they weren't allowed to celebrate their feast. And he did all these things to the Jewish people. The culmination of his wickedness against the Jewish people was they moved into the temple and they sacrificed a pig inside of the temple, the temple uh, court area there. 
and then he demanded or commanded that the Jewish people worship that slain pig or whatever it might be. That was it for the Maccabees. All right, you can take away our Sabbath. You can take away our feast. You can take away this. No, that's it. And there was a high priest. I think he was a high priest. He was definitely a priest. His name was Maccabees, Judas Maccabeus. And he said, that's it. And he said, I'd rather die than submit to this guy any longer. And a bunch of people came behind him. A bunch of priests initially said, me too. And they rose up and they withstood Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucids. And for a hundred years, Judah was still under the control of the Seleucids, but Jerusalem primarily in the area right around it was not. They were free. They were independent. They had liberty. And that's the period of time that is called the Maccabees period of history. When, as verse 13 pointed out there, that O Zion against your sons, O Greece, uh, and they will wield like a warrior's sword. It's the only time in the history of Israeli-Greek relations that they had uh, a fighting. And so it seems pretty good to me that that's the period that Zechariah is seeing here. Well, we've learned a lot, haven't we? Oh, man. Well, let me say this. Uh, that event by Antiochus Epiphanes was a defilement of the temple. I think that's a fulfillment of another prophecy. Daniel chapter 11, it says this. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Have you heard of the abomination that causes desolation? Well, there are a lot of uh, Jewish people in particular that will look to that event involving Antiochus Epiphanes as the abomination which causes desolation of the Jewish temple. That certainly may be the case. Daniel 11 talks about it. Daniel chapter 12 talks about it. I would suggest to you it only partially fulfills the prophecy because we read in the New Testament book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation chronicles the last days of events uh, in the history of our world, really. There, it tells us this, and we're going to end. Well, no, we're not. Revelation... <laughs> You're going to read it on your own. Revelation chapter 13, we learn that the Antichrist, if that's, we're going to spend a lot of time next week on that, I think, if we can get to it. Um, but that the Antichrist, who initially signs a peace treaty with Israel. Here's my understanding of last day's event. There's going to be a seven-year period of time. That seven-year period of time begins with the Antichrist signing a peace agreement that creates essentially world peace. And it will be a world peace somehow that revolves around the nation of Israel and its surrounding enemies. It's not real, real clear as to well, why are they the center of it all. The Antichrist for the first three and a half years of that seven-year period of time is going to be Israel's friend. They're going to love him. As a matter of fact, many of the Jews are going to look to him and begin to wonder or at least begin to practice, our Messiah has come. And they're going to see this Antichrist as their actual Christ. The word Antichrist doesn't always have to mean against Christ. It can mean pseudo-Christ, like Christ. In the middle of that seven-year period of time, the Antichrist is going to show his true colors. He's going to go into the temple, Revelation 13, you can read it, go into the temple and defile it. And that event in Revelation 13 is referred to as the abomination that causes desolation. And so what Antiochus Epiphanes did, I think, is just a foreshadowing of what will ultimately happen in that last day. 
I'm going to finish the chapter. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. We're talking about the Jews. As the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they will shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and the new wine like the young women. Zechariah has gone past the days of Alexander the Great, past the days of the Maccabees, past the days of Jesus' triumphal entry, and he's gone to the last days, which are still future to you and I, when the Antichrist will be established on the earth and Christ will return. Remember that Revelation 19 passage? I feel like I've totally lost everybody. We need, we need blackboards here and charts. But when, when Christ will return, he will defeat the Antichrist and that system and he will establish himself, and as verse 17 says, and this is it for us today, how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty, grain will make the young men flourish, and the new wine, the young woman, there will be that period of peace, there will be that period of prosperity in Israel, established so Christ can rule and reign on the earth in righteousness for a thousand glorious years. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> Father, thank you for, for this. Lord, I, I'm just, uh, it's just amazing to consider the operation of this world. And Lord, you don't give us every single detail of every single event that will occur, but clearly, if you could pro prophesy of these things 150 years or more before they actually occurred, thousands of years in, as it relates to those final verses. Lord, it, it teaches us about your sovereignty. It teaches us about your might and your power, that you're omniscient, that you know all things. And so, Lord, you are a God that we can put our care into. We can kind of leave ourselves with you trusting that you know, you care, you're capable. And so, Lord, I, I think I prayed in the beginning. I prayed again. Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith as a result of our time together in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.